Okay, before I record did I by any chance send last week's class recording to anybody here? No? Okay, I had to swap things over my phone and I lost it. So if anyone knows, I can't remember if I sent it to someone or not, someone asked me, but if I did send it, then if I sent it to someone, then let me know, because it means you can send it back to me and I'll have the recording at the moment. I don't have it on my recording. Okay. Um, okay, so we were looking, we, we're now going to jump in to the moral... Um, the moral dilemma, okay, and that is obviously, and I love the fact that we're reading all of this at the moment also uh, in the parsha, so it's kind of something we're grappling with anyway. Um, the quest, the biggest question, okay, well, here we have Yaakov, he's the father of our nation, okay, and he is claiming birthright, claiming to be the father of our nation who is you know, the one who has taken the birthright, and from him we have the 12 tribes of Israel, from him we come. Um, and the biggest question we have to ask ourselves is, the very basis on which that lies, okay, the claiming of the birthright, the very basis on which Yaakov um, comes to fruition as a nation from, okay, is that basis justified? Okay, and... I, I think when we're younger, or, or I would say when I learned this, maybe I'll speak for myself, but I think it's true anyway. Um, when I learned this in school, I went to quite a Haredi, well, it's not Haredi, people go there aren't, but the, the institution was run by more Haredi type. Um, and um, certainly this kind of narrative would have been presented in a very binary fashion. Okay, uh, Asaph was wrong, Yaakov was right, uh, Yaakov the Sadiq. No, no, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying this is very much, it's a, it's, and by the way, it doesn't come from nothing. We're going to see in a minute. It comes from the Midrashim, right? Chazal, you know, there, there, there's this and there's this, meaning, but, but I would say the majority of Chazal will go along that track, and we've spoken about it already from the beginning, and I think it's really um, important that we mention again that there are different ways of reading a text. And there's a very, the, the, the way that we read it in the sense of, of creating these binary positions is, is important. It's important specifically, and this is what, specifically for those that cannot cope, okay, and I'll put it this way, those that cannot cope with moral ambiguity. Okay, um, and if you can't, then the door's over there. <laughs> because, um, because I, I, I think, and again, I'm not, it, and it's not, a, it's not, I'm not, it's not a criticism. I think, for example, when we're children, are a classic example. Okay, um, and by the way, there's plenty of, of adults that are the same, and you know what? I think that's exactly what Chazal understood, right? That we're, as human beings, we generally are more, um, we sway towards, we've spoken about this loads of times, but, but towards order, okay? We, we, we naturally are inclined to order things so that we understand them, so we can place them into boxes and the world becomes ordered and our cognitive um, consciousness, okay, is ordered in a way in which we are able to cope Right? That, that's the thing. It's a coping mechanism. And we need order. All of us need some degree of order in our lives. Right? We, and by the way, for some people, order will be 
one thing and for other people order will be another thing you know sometimes you go into someone's house and it's totally chaotic oh my goodness how could i ever live in a house like that but for them it's ordered right and they'll come to your house which is let's say totally ordered and they'll think this is insane right i'm saying i'm just giving that as a very you know <laughs> having left my house totally disordered this morning um those that that's um i'm saying everybody has the different degree in which order exists for them and this is in many ways what Hazal understood, right? That there are that there's, that perhaps maybe even when Hazal were writing for the Amcha, and I say that in inverted commas, but for the Amcha, for the lay people who were not necessarily highly intellectual, and including in that even you know certainly women and children, but but and I'm saying that as a woman, but certainly in the times when Hazal were writing. Um, and, and, and even the men, right? That there was a certain way in which it was easier to read the text so that it would sit comfortably, right? So that it was ordered, right? And this is exactly what we're going to jump into here. Now, I'm going back now to kindergarten. When we're in kindergarten, we want, and by the way, in any story, right? You go to any show, any cinema, any, any t uh, um, film, most films are set in a way in which you have the goody and the baddie, right? And the bad and the goody in the end defeats the baddie, right? That, that's basically what most stories are made up of, one way or another, right? Um, we were speaking a few weeks ago about the show Hamilton. Hamilton is also there's also very much elements of the goody and the baddie, but what the beauty there is that you have this kind of grey space, which I think nowadays, by the way, more and more films are going towards, and that, by the way, is postmodernism, okay? But more and more films are going towards this kind of grey area where what when a person is, you know, they they are they're good, but they have elements of bad, and the bad has elements of good. Even in the film Superman, all of that, there, there's still that kind of ambivalence where even the goodest, the best of people have an element of the bad, right? Harry Potter. There's all you can look at all of them, all of these classic films. Chazal understood this, and therefore, when they look at the stories in Torah, they want to try exactly to do the. To, to, they work in this framework, which is setting out before us certain paradigms. The paradigm of good and the paradigm of bad because it's easier for us to function, to understand the text in that way. That's number one. Then just to go back to what I was saying about children, children, we bring children up, the way in which we educate children when they are young, very young, you know, from when we start talking to them, is we categorize. That's what we do. This is yellow, this is red. This is black, this is white. This is good, this is bad. This you're allowed to do, this you're not allowed to do. Okay? Um, you know, this, whatever. We, everything is categorized, right? This is your family, this is not your family. This is a boy, this is a girl, right? The, 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 those, the... <laughs> saying that's, by the way, that's one of, that is, in, in all seriousness, that is one of the problems today is that by from such an early age by not categorizing you're doing an injustice to your children meaning it's one thing once they already grow up and reach teenage away they begin to understand that there's nuances obviously that's what we want them that's part of the maturation process but to not be able to categorize when they're very young creates psychological problems both in the child and both in society i believe anyway but in any case the categorization is something that's very very important because through that we are able to learn but what happens when we remain in those boxes once we've matured and once we're older? And that's really the question. And that's 
in many ways what Chazal are doing to us. And by the way, when I say Chazal, I'm putting them all into one category, but obviously there's plenty of commentators that don't go down this path. Okay, generally the Midrash will do, because the Midrash likes to create binary um, frameworks in which to, to see the text. It's easier that way, okay? And, and they do for a purpose. There's always an underlying purpose. Um, but what we're going to see with the story of Yaakov, and that was by way of introduction, is I basically, there's many ways to look at it, but I basically categorized it into three different ways of understanding it. The first way is to see, exactly as we've described now, the way in which, um, to see the text, to see the action, okay, the, the, the morally ambiguous action that Yaakov does as justified. Okay, there's a justification for what Yaakov does. And what is that justification? So that's what we're going to see. And therefore, once we have justified it, okay, it makes the whole underpinning of our nation okay. Right? It, it, it creates um, the equilibrium for which, for, in which we can continue to happily walk along our path. Okay? That's one way. The second way is to say it's totally unjustified, okay? Yaakov was wrong, okay? And I'm going to show you, by the way, from the text, from the Peshat as well, because the Peshat and the Drash here are mass massively at odds with each other. That's what's so interesting about this particular narrative. The Peshat goes very much down the line of what? What do you think we see in the Peshat, in the basic text, later on? that it's not justified, okay? The text comes, and I'm going to show you various places, not just in the narrative itself, which there I think it's clear, but even afterwards in Yaakov's life, the text wants to show us that his actions were, put it this way, maybe not, not justified, but were, had severe consequences, okay? Severe moral consequences, okay? That, but the drush generally, and again, there's many different levels of it, but the drush generally will go towards him being justified. We'll try and justify Yaakov by what? By black, by blackwashing um, Asaph. The middle part, and, and that's the final one we're going to look at, is to try and find something in between, okay? Which is, um, which is basically living. Okay, I think that that's what it is. It's, it's living. Living means that I'm constantly faced with different moral dilemmas and I need to make a decision in that moment where I'm weighing up different values. But once I have made that decision, it does not mean that I will always be able to live with the consequences of my actions happily. Okay, I will maybe haunted by the action I felt was the right thing to do in the moment, and when I look back, think, how could I have done that? But yet, still know I needed to do it in the moment. Okay, I'll get, the classic example is, is soldiers in war. Okay, that's the classic example. Okay, um, where where you have two values: the value of life versus the value of survival. Okay, and and the soldier there is is standing in that moment and knows that if he doesn't kill the person in front of him, he will not survive. Okay, and forget even the ideology behind the war. Forget even that. That's like a whole nother a whole nother dimension. But in that moment, and therefore he kills the person in front of him. He knows that was the right thing to do in that moment. However, okay, this, the, the, either Halakha talks about it in terms of Rodef, right? However, it doesn't mean that he doesn't live with the consequences of that action afterwards, right? So I'm saying that's the mid that's the middle path. That's the path neither here nor there. 
And that's the path, by the way, that we can only reach when we've reached, I really believe this, when we've reached a level of maturity. Meaning when we've matured enough to understand that life isn't binary. Okay? And, and, and but living in that, in that grey area that we've spoken about all the time, living in that grey area is, is really, really difficult. It's really, really challenging. It doesn't make living easy. Okay? And the biggest question is, and, and this is really the question I, that I think runs through the whole of Steph Liberation, is it meant to be easy? Right? Is living meant to be easy? And then I think that the answer that Steph Liberation brings for us is that, of course it isn't. Because part of being a human being means living, means living. And living brings with it suffering, and it brings with it crisis and despair and all of these other things, but it also brings with it redemption and meaning and love and compassion and the other and relationship and transcendence and spirituality and all of those other things as well. And therefore, does one trump the other? That's not that again, that's a binary question, right? Is one better than the other? Again, that's a binary question. And I don't think living exists in a binary way. I think living exists in a multifaceted complex, entangled way. And that, I think, is very much what we're going to see through the narrative here. Okay? Um, so look at source uh, number 15. 15. Uh, hold on. Hold on. Have I got a piece of old sheets again? One second. It's uh, Avodazara, 11B. Oh, oh yes, I've got the old sheet here, I apologise. Yeah, 18B on page 11. Dilemma. So there's a, um, let's look at source number 15. I'm reading with you, okay? It's from Gemara in Avadazara 11b, and it says as follows Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, the Romans have yet another festival in Rome which occurs once every 70 years. Then a healthy man representing Asav is brought and made to ride a lame man representing Yaakov who began to limp after his encounter with the heavenly minister of Esau. He is dressed in the attire of Adam, on his head is placed the scope of Ravi Ishmael, one of the ten martyrs killed by the Romans, and on his neck are hung pieces of fine gold to the weight of four zuzim. The marketplaces through which these pass are paved with onyx stones, and the proclamation is made before him, the reckoning of the ruler is wrong, the brother of our Lord, the imposter. Let him who will see it, see it. He who will not see it now will never see it. Of what avail is the, is the treason to, uh, to the traitor or deceit to the deceiver? So apparently this is really an event that took place, okay? Um, where they would basically dress these people up to Ilu, they were Esau and Yaakov. And, and, and the Romans would basically, you know, um, get them to walk through the streets where showing everybody that these Jewish people are deceivers. 
Okay, and by the way, I also think this may be also where Shakespeare gets all this, everything, a lot of this idea of the deceiver, the Jew is the deceiver, um, it comes from here, okay? And the Romans were very clear um, what they were saying here through this whole kind of drama that they played out is that the Jews, the basis of their, you know, supremacy, so to speak, is, is, is flawed, okay? And it's flawed because the person who, 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 who claims, okay, to have the birthright or to be the supreme leader or whatever it happens to be, did so through means of deception, okay? And therefore, the whole situation is flawed. This is the dilemma we're facing, okay? Is, are they right? Is it true? Okay, is it true that the whole the whole basis of our nationhood is 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 founded on deception? Um, it's it's an uncomfortable question, I know. Okay, and it feels uncomfortable when we say it and when we think about it. We it feels uncomfortable. That's why it's much easier to just say, oh no no no, Asaph was terrible. He had to do it. Or, you know, Yaakov is a Sadiq and everything he did is 100% true and, he, and Rivka had absolute prophecy from God and knew that this was the right thing. It's easier, to, much easier to say that because then we feel okay about ourselves. When someone tell, tells us something that we're uncomfortable with, the very human um, response, immediate response, is to justify or to cover up. Okay, those are the two things we do. Either we justify... Or we, or we try to cover up, in, and I don't mean in a literal way, I mean in a metaphorical way. We cover it up by making excuses or by covering it up by trying to just create layers upon ourselves, okay? Or, or, or by, you know, trying to just forget it and, 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 and sub, you know, um, uh, suppress it, okay? That's called covering up. That, by the way, we see with kind and Hevel, okay? I don't mean all the motif of covering up and separation is also based on this idea, psychologically, okay? The idea of layers, that Winnicott talks about the true self, the false self, the ego, the id, everything, all these psychologists talk about is exactly this idea of covering it up. So it's easier to do that because there's really a sense of our feeling. That's why I, like, really wanted to, like, throw the question out that you feel, because I think we should feel. I think it's important that we do feel uncomfortable with the question. Because if we don't feel uncomfortable, then we're not going to do anything to try and grapple with it. And I think we need to grapple with it. I think that's what the text wants us to do. Okay? So that's the dilemma. Okay, so the first perspective... Um, the first perspective is, is what I said to you already. Is this binary perspective that Rifa and Yaakov are absolutely right and justified in their actions. Okay, um, there's three elements, I think, to this perspective. The first element, okay, is the idea of Rivka's prophecy, and we've already spoken about it. Okay, we've spoken about Rivka's prophecy, we've spoken about the fact, again, this, this, this um, perspective in terms of Rivka's prophecy, okay, is not going to take it the way that we understood it. It's not going to take it away, but we understood it in the sense of it being an ambiguous prophecy and of her having to interpret and the notion of interpretation as autonomy. Okay, it didn't, not, not that. That's not where it, this perspective goes. This perspective goes to the very simple understanding that she received prophecy from God and that prophecy was clear. Okay, it was clear to her that Yaakov is the one that needed to receive the blessing. And when she receives that prophecy, she has a totally um, 
her, she has an end goal, okay, that she believes, she re- not believes, that she does receive from God, okay, and she works towards that goal, whatever it takes, she does in order to achieve that goal. In the same way, by the way, where's the precedent for that? Sarah, Sarah's the precedent for that. Sarah also, she, Sarah says to Abraham, send out this, you know, woman with her son, because he's not going to receive the birthright. Okay, he's not your descendant. And Abraham's toing and froing, and I'm not sure, I don't think, he's my son, how can I do that? How can I send him? It's morally incorrect. And God comes down and says, listen to the voice of your wife. Unambiguously, God comes down to Abraham in that particular event, not like the Arkadah. There was an unambiguous prophecy from God to say, your, your, doesn't, by the way, that's also very interesting, uh, it doesn't necessarily say she's right in the moral sense, okay? It says, listen to the voice of your wife because why because what she's saying is true and and truth by the way is going to be a massive thing we're going to address because who is who according to Chazal and even in the Torah itself who is the character that symbolizes truth Yaakov Yaakov symbolizes truth can you believe that I mean he symbolizes truth right and that's what we're going to spend a good amount of time looking at what does truth mean why is Yaakov of all the Avot, if you're going to choose one of the Avot to symbolize truth, who would it be? Probably more Yitzchak, I would imagine. Yitzchak's very what you see is what you get, very straightforward, right? Very Yashal, um, almost bound, right? This notion of, of truth as this absolute concept that can't be touched. That's Yitzchak, I would say. I mean, that's how I would understand. Um, and that's what we're going to look at. But again, and, and this is exactly the point here, Yaakov is truth. What does that even mean? And, and therefore, so to go back to, 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 to what God is coming down to, to, to I think, Abraham is saying here, is it's not that Yitzhah is necessarily right in the moral sense. It's that what Sarah is saying is true. It's true in the sense of it needing to come, to, to be brought forth, to happen. Okay? And, and therefore, Rivka turns around and says, well, my, my mother-in-law did it. And she had God's haskama, right? She had God's uh, uh, agreement. Uh, God comes down, he's given me a prophecy. The prophecy I hear is clear that Yaakov is the one that needs to be the one who to receive the birthright. And I'm just doing what God told me to do. That's, again, it's not the way we've read the, read the text, not the way we've read the prophecy, but it's certainly one way of reading it. And if we go according to that, then how does that reflect on the whole narrative? It's justified, right? Everything that happens there is justified because, because no matter what, Yaakov has to receive the birthright. Okay, so that's one idea. The second idea is who was Esau? Okay, and again, this is why I'm saying to you that it's very easy to work in binary methodology, right? Because if we paint Esau in the way that the Drush paints him, and by the way, even in the way that we painted him in some ways from the Peshat, how have we looked at your Esau from the Peshat? Animalistic in his persona, right? The idea, even the way he's described, he can't, he's very red, okay, he's very hairy. He's the idea that he's a hunter and he eats, you know, he says, even when he comes to, to, to Yaakov and he says, give me the soup, nah. 
right? He says, almost give it to me raw, right? There's an element of him that we've spoken about, the idea of instantaneous and the process and everything else. He's very much the hedonist, right? In the sense, in the pshat, right? He's very much the person, when we're talking about the existential crisis that surrounds the family because of Yitzhak's personality and his trauma, right? Yitzhak's response is, is very much living in the moment. Okay? Now, whether that, by the way, justifies what Yaakov does to him or not, I'm not sure. But the Drush certainly thinks it does. Because what the Drush comes along and does is paints Asav in a way in which he is, and here I'm going to throw out a very, very strong word, but he is evil. Okay? That exactly what I'm talking about, the goody and the baddie. Right? Asav is the baddie for all intents and purposes. And therefore, if he's the baddie, who's the goodie? Yaakov, okay? And we're going to look at him in a couple of sources. And then the third thing we have to understand is, um, and this, by the way, is a corollary to, to Rivka. This is a corollary to, to the fact that Rivka gets a prophecy, right, is that Yitzhak is blind. What does that mean? He's blind to Esau's imperfection. Okay, meaning that he, he, and, and I'm going to show you in a minute, in other places where we have this work, this idea of his eyes being um, dimmed, okay, for example, we'll, we'll look um, with Eli and his sons, okay, there again, there's this idea of the father being blind to the moral impropriety of the son. And if that's the case, then even more so, Rifka's actions are justified. Because she has no partner with whom to speak. Because if Yaakov, sorry, if Yitzchak sees Esau as being the one who is fitting to receive the birthright, then Rivka can't argue with that. And she's not going to argue with that. So what's the only option left to her? To trick him. Okay? So all of this creates a picture in which, again, it's a picture that works if one is immersed in a binary mindset. It works. Okay, I'm not saying it doesn't. Okay, it works. And if we want to leave it there, we could leave it there. Okay, if we don't want to jump into this kind of more nuanced, messy way of seeing things, it's easy and maybe easier to leave it there. So let me just share with you a couple of um, a couple of examples. So firstly in Shmuel in Malachim. When we talk about Eli, I just brought you a few of the psukim to show you, okay? Um, and Eli was very old. He heard that his sons um, did to all of Israel. And it was at the time when Eli was lying in his, in his place and his eyes had begun to grow dim. Um, I didn't bring you the Hebrew, which was a bit stupid. Um, oh, six, uh, 19, yeah. Do I have another sheet? Sure. But I don't, I don't know if it's the most updated one. Um... So, for those of you that have got the, hold on one second, for those of you who have got the new sheets, okay, it's six, it's 16, right? 19. So silly. For those of you who have got the new sheets, it's 19. For those of you who have got the old sheets, it's 16. The new sheets is on page 11, right? And the old sheets is on page 9. Okay. So, so, um, so as you can see, okay, so we're looking in Malachim, where 
Um, Elise's eyes are growing dim, also the same words, right? And he couldn't see. And it was when Shaw was old that he made his son's judge over Israel, and King David was old, advanced in years, and they cupped him with clothes and he was not warm. All of these notions talk about the idea of, also with Shmuel, when they're old and their eyes are dimming or getting old, that they haven't got the ability to judge a situation or to judge people correctly. Okay, they, they're, they're, there's an element of the eyes being covered. Okay, last week we spoke a lot about, we looked at the idea of, of, of Asav and what it means, what happened to him, what his, what, and Rashi's commentary. Okay, remember we spoke about Rashi's commentary and the three different things, that were three different comment, uh, commentaries that Rashi brings on the idea of his eyes growing dim, one being the smoke of the daughters uh, doing Avadah Zarav, of, of, of uh, Asav's um, wives, um, doing Avadah Zarah, one being the angels with the, eye, with the tears going down, and the third one being, because that's the way it was meant to be, right, because, because Yaakov had to receive the blessings that way, and we said the one thing, that one thread that ties through all of these things is that Yitzchak had no ability to take or to make autonomous decisions. That was basically the, the chut mitzchabel. It was like the thread that tied all of those ideas together was this idea that Yaakov was basically, Yitzchak was basically meant to be passive. Okay? Here it's even more than passivity. Here it seems to suggest that there's not just the passivity that is part and parcel of Yitzchak's makeup or what Yitzchak was meant to be or he's bound. As we always said, right? Yitzchak is both bound in a physical sense on the Akedah and metaphorically in his life. But more than that, is that he lost his moral, his capacity for moral um, judgment, okay, to be able to see a situation. Now again, why is that? There's many, many, many different reasons why that is the case, okay? And maybe more than anything, I think, there's also an element of, if you remember, he keeps going back to this, we did last year, but he keeps going back to Be'er L'chai Ro'i, remember we did that? Okay, where's Be'er L'chai Ro'i? That's basically where... Yishmael was abandoned, okay? Um, and Hagar called out Hashem, etc., etc. Why does Yitzhak keep going back there? Because there's an element of every survivor, okay, every person who succeeds, if they have a moral conscience, is thinking about the people that they trampled on along the way, okay? And um, what Yitzhak very much, and we see that Yitzhak has a very sensitive personality, but Yitzhak all the time is thinking about the fact that, his, that he is the one that's given the birthright and maybe he doesn't feel he's worthy of it, right? And he almost goes back to like the Elahayroi in the sense of trying to make to create ties with his brother. There's a beautiful midrash that talks about the two of them coming back together in order to to Keturah being Hagar in order to to pay Abraham and Hagar back together. Again, all of these ideas is basically going back to exactly this idea that we're talking about here. That Yitzchak, why does he choose a sub? Maybe there's an element of him wanting to justify or wanting to um, redeem okay, what his father did or what his mother did rather, okay, and that is sending away the firstborn. And therefore he clings on to his firstborn. Okay? There's an element of that as well. So there's all of these things, but more than anything what the Torah is telling us here, and this is the key, what the Torah seems to be telling us through all of these parallels is that Yitzchak lost the ability to see the situation clearly. 
for whatever reason. And that's also Russia's commentary is also telling us the smoke in his eyes, the tears in his eyes, right? He couldn't see the situation clearly. And seeing the situation clearly in this sense, according to this reading, would be what? To see that Yaakov is the one who needs to receive the birthright and not Asa. Okay? Therefore, again, what are we saying here? Therefore, Yitzhak had to be deceived because he did not possess the moral and ethical and um, judgment and vision and clarity to be able to know which son to give the birthright to. Now, okay, so I just want to take for a second the shot and think about, is that true? <coughs> Is that reading true? When we look at the Peshat itself, think about what we said. When Yaakov comes to Yitzchak, does, and Yitzchak thinks what? He thinks it, well, we don't know. He thinks it, he's not sure. He thinks it might be Esav, might be Yaakov. Does he give? Right, that's the ambiguity. Okay? And then he asks him again, and he says, I'm Esav. Does he give him, one minute, does he give him the birthright, yes or no? No. No, he doesn't. When does he give him the birthright? In, in clarity. In the, in the, in the night, day, daylight. He gives him the birthright in daylight. What does that tell us? It tells us that maybe this reading doesn't necessarily work. Because if this reading is telling us that Yitzhak judgment was not correct. Why all of a sudden after this event will it become correct? That's the opposite. Okay? If he doesn't think that Yaakov is worthy, well surely this event of him tricking him is going to make him think he's even less worthy. So we don't see that in the Peshat. I'm asking from the Peshat itself. We don't know why you're right. There's a lot of dialogue that we don't see. But from the Peshat itself it doesn't seem clear. I don't know. Karen? Take his side. Yeah. So again, so but exactly what you're saying works exactly what we're saying is that maybe Yitzhak wasn't as what the text is suggesting to us that his judgment wasn't correct. The the pshat seems to suggest to us that Yitzhak wasn't as stupid as we think he is. Okay, that that's basically what I'm saying here. But again. So it's exactly this, that idea, okay, that he obviously gave the love to Esau because he felt that Esau needed it, or because even because he identified, an element of himself identified with Esau, which we discussed, but not that he believed that Esau was really the one that was going to... For sure, but it doesn't mean he was ever going to give him the birthright, right? And that, so, so again, that, I'm just showing you the other perspective. Look at source number 17, okay, and here I'm going to read to you just, I brought you just a, a, a few extracts of where we see this view, this very binary vision. Source number, not 17. Someone tell me what it is in the new papers. And not, uh, Talmud Bava Batra. Okay, so source number 20. Rav Yochanan said that the wicked one, again, even the way that the Midrash describes Asaph, look, okay, remember what we said. This perspective is the perspective of... Uh, 
I would say even a fundamentalist reading. Okay, we remember at the beginning of the, of, of the year we spoke about the three different ways we can read the text. And one of the extreme ways we can read the text was, uh, was that the text is absolutely divine. The characters are absolutely perfect and divine. And therefore any, any uh, contradictions or things that seem out of place is because we, the reader, don't really understand what the text is trying to tell us. And therefore, we're going to try and reconcile them with our image, with our paradigm of the text being absolutely 100% perfect and God being perfect and the people being perfect. So this Midrash is reading it from that more fundamentalist, literal reading of the text. And he says as follows, that wicked one, Asaph, committed five sins on that day. Okay? He has relations with a girl who was betrothed to another, murdered someone, denied God's existence, denied the resurrection of the dead, and spurned the birthright. Now, well, yeah. Okay, which of those five do we actually see in the Pshat? Correct, that's the only one from the Pshat, right? We know that he, lay, he lays with, and here they're going to bring in various different um, proofs. Okay, he lay with the betrothed maiden because it is written, and Asaph came from the field. Okay, who else, by the way, do we see in the field? Yitzchak. When Rivka comes, what he he's the there, right? And it is written elsewhere, Devarim twenty-two, in connection with the betrothed girl, he found her in the field. Okay, that that this is very very classic working of midrash, which is to bring in different sukim with different words, interconnect them in order to support the claim. Okay? It, it, will, it works sometimes. I'm going to show you where it works a bit later on when we're going to look at what I think is a mind-blowing parallel between the, the ladder of Yaakov and the... Um, which I had been thinking about for ages and then I saw someone wrote about it and then I did research and someone else had written about it and I was like, it's, it's mind-blowing between the um, Tower of Babel and the ladder of Yaakov where there's a word there that only comes up twice in the whole of Tanakh. So that you can say, Bethesel, okay, there already, yeah, there's something in which to stand on because there's a, a, a joint three, two or three words that you only see together only in those two places. But the word Sadeh, okay, it's, that's what I'm saying. What the Midrash is doing here is it has, it, it goes like this, okay. Sometimes people will write a book or write a thesis based on a claim that they have, okay, so they know beforehand what their claim is, and they will do everything, no matter what, round, this way, that way, in order to justify the claim. The other way of doing it is to say what? I have a question, okay? This is my question. I don't know whether it's right or wrong. I don't know if, if it's true or not true. I need to research it and understand it. And once you delve into the research, and by the way, the re when I say research, it takes you from one place to the other to the other, which is what I'm doing now, and it, it, it does your head in, right? But you literally, you think you found something, and then it, it sends you somewhere else. And you go and look something else up in a book, and you realize, oh my goodness, that original claim had nothing to stand on. Then you go down that road. You find three other claims down that road. One of the claims takes you down that road, that road, that road, that road, that road. And when I talk about roads, I'm really talking about books and articles. And you're going all the way around until you get to the point where you've totally departed from your original claim and then you think oh my goodness how the heck am I going to write this and that is that's what it is to, that's what it is it's this is superficial uh, that's the word I'm looking for there's a superficiality to it 
because there's a claim that needs to be justified and I will do everything to justify the claim rather than the question that leads me in the end to a, a truth. And again, here, truth not in the absolute sense, okay? Truth in the pluralist sense, okay? Of a truth in which I feel, I, I live with, I exist with, okay? They're very different things. Here we're looking at it from the absolute sense. There's a claim, and the claim needs to be justified, okay? So that's what they do. He commits a murder, and here we're going to see the same thing, because it's written here that he was faint. And it's written elsewhere, Yomiyahu, woe is me now, for my soul is faint before the murderer. Okay? We know that he denied God, because it's written, what benefit is this to me? Okay? Lama Zerli. Remember, that was the word we spoke, the, the, the sentence we spoke on. And it's written elsewhere, this is... This is my God, Zer Eli, and I will praise him. Okay, meaning, uh, here they're even using different mechanisms as well. Okay, they're not even using parallel words, they're using parallel words that claim two different things and therefore claiming that the original claim, okay, is a denial of the second claim. Okay, um, it's, by the way, it's a, it's a brilliant, the Midrash is a brilliant literary device. If anyone wants to study a way in which literary development, the Midrash, is, it's got everything. It's unbelievable. And we know that he denied the resurrection of the dead because it said, behold, I am about to die. And he also spurned the birthright because he's written, um, so Asaph despised the birthright. That, okay, that, that, they didn't even need to bring from anywhere else. Okay, that's clear from the text. Okay, he denied the resurrection of the dead because he said, behold, I'm about to die. Now again, that, that one could claim, okay, right? Because I'm about to die, um, what, 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 why would that deny the resurrection of the dead? Because if I believe in the resurrection of the dead, I'm going to need the birthright when I come back to life. Right? But if I don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then when I die, nothing happens afterwards. There's no point in me taking the birthright. Okay? So if he didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Again, the whole notion of the belief in the resurrection, and this is what the irony of the whole Midrash is, the whole notion of the, the belief in the resurrection of the dead, when does it come? It's not in Tanakh. Okay, put it this way. It's not in Tanakh. Okay, it's a proposition, it's a dogmatic proposition, okay, it's a, a dogmatic article of faith that, by the way, is very alien in its authenticity to Judaism, but it comes much later on, probably the time around the time the Midrash, the second, third century, okay, that's when all of these ideas came, and surprisingly enough, where does the, where does the idea of dogma come from? Christianity. Okay, now I'm not saying it's totally alien to Judaism, there are certain dogmatic principles in, Ju in Judaism, I would say less so in Tanakh, maybe more in the Mishnah, but therefore where does the Mishnah get it from? There's a lot to, to grapple with here, but certainly what we're seeing in the Midrash is they're imposing 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century ideas about Judaism onto a text in the Torah that I promise you Asab didn't even know what resurrection of the dead was. That, I can, that I'm sure I can claim with certainty, okay? So what I'm saying is that, but there's a reason, and this is exactly the point, we have to try and understand and grapple with why the why Chazal are doing this. There's a reason, it's a logic behind what they're doing. And the logic is that the people at the time that are reading this text are grappling with the question, okay, maybe the Romans are right. Maybe that whole ceremony they do with him on the donkey, walking around the streets and everything, maybe they're right. Maybe we should give Judaism up. Maybe we are morally disgusting creatures, right? Maybe we genuinely need to claim that we're wrong, okay? And therefore, Chazal comes, and I, and I say in their wisdom, and it's wisdom because they understood what the people needed to hear. 
Okay? They come in their wisdom and they tell the people we are, that the Romans are not right. Okay? The Romans are not right. Their reading of the text is wrong because they don't understand that who Yaakov was contending with was evil. That this Asaph had done five sins before the five worst sins that one can think of before the day had even begun. And therefore, of course, in, with, with such a character, with such an evil individual, we have to deceive such an evil individual because one can't genuinely have a conversation and try to get the birthright from such an individual. It just won't work. And therefore, the means in which he does it are justified. Okay, so that's one midrash. The second midrash in source number 21 or 18, Midrash Shochal Tov. Also, it says it's, it's a Midrash, not as well known as, for example, Midrash Rabbah. I think it's slightly later on. And here it says as follows. A scoundrel, a Naval says in his heart, this refers to the wicked Esau, who said one thing with his mouth, but something else in his heart. Okay, now again, even the Midrash here is playing on something. What's it playing on? Okay, it's saying, if we have enemies that are working in this way, we have to do what? We have to have to treat them in the same way, by the same means. Okay, and I wrote last week about this, the idea that when you had the two, I said to you also, I discussed it in class, there's two types of enemies, enemies that clearly out to kill us, and, but when you have an enemy that's saying one thing and doing something else, but you know that genuinely they're anti-Semitic or whatever it happens to be, how does one deal with such a thing? And the answer is that very often in such a situation, one has to walk in one's enemy's shoes. In order to really understand someone psychologically and to fight against it, one has to walk in their shoes. And in essence, that's maybe what Yaakov has to do. He has to wear the Yadayim Day Esav in order to understand how to deal with these kind of people that exist in the world and the biggest question this is a question I ask and I think it's one of the biggest questions we have to ask ourselves it's true that that is what necessity requires us to do but the biggest question we have to ask ourselves is at what price okay and when we just when we think and discover the price we pay to walk in the shoes of our enemies okay that is the point at which everything unravels okay because it's the point at which we recognize what we've given up in order to fight for survival, okay? And, and I'll leave it there, but I think we can take it to every different area of our national and individual lives, okay? Um, so he says, so he says, and this is exactly what the Midrash is saying, okay, the wicked day sub, he says one thing with his mouth, something else in his heart. In his heart, he said, the days of mourning my father drew near, while with his mouth, he said, here I am. And why is he called Nabal, a scoundrel? Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rabbi Ishmael because he filled the entire world with disgusting things. Nevelot. He established Batei Kiklin, Batei Kotsim, theatres, circuses. Okay, again, and here, what are they doing? Exactly, okay? Theatres and circuses and temples of idolatry. What are they doing? They're taking all the things that the people understand as Naval. Right, which is, is, is literally like scoundrelous and terrible and, and disgusting, and bringing them to the ancient times of Asab, where clearly there were not um, any of these things, theatres and circuses and all of these things. Okay, but that's exactly the way the Midrash um, works. Rav Huna said because he filled the land with Jewish carcasses. Okay, Rabbi, Rav Abba said because he was despicable. He set up statues of himself at the entrance of the, uh, to the prostitute and at the entrance of toilets and bathhouses. Again, this is what? 
the Romans, right? Um, and this is, this is written, your contemplativeness has deceived you in the pride of your heart. Okay, so again, what the Midrash is doing here is, is, is brilliant. Okay, literally, literary, literary brilliance. Okay, it's brilliant. Because what it's doing is, it's taking a dilemma, an existential dilemma, that the people are facing at the time. Okay, which is, are we really what the Romans tell us we are? Okay, are we, maybe we are. Maybe they're right. Right? And what they're doing, the rabbis, is they are ensuring, again, I just want to make it clear, they are ensuring the survival of Am Yisrael. In many ways, they are doing what Rivka and Yaakov did. Okay? They're dressing something up in a certain way in order to ensure the survival of Am Yisrael. It's brilliant. Okay? Because they understand the psyche of the people. And they understand that people can only cope with binary understandings. Okay? Maybe, maybe there's a few that, that can't, but generally the people at the time, especially in that time, were not very learned. Okay? And therefore the people, the way cognitively they understood, by the way, more than that, the way that that kind of environment, the, 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 the mindset of that kind of environment was binary. It's not today like in postmodernism where we're pluralist, where we all, you know, there's so many different ways of understanding things and we understand that every text has different layers to it. No, for them it was all you're this, all you're this. Right? And so if we're not the goodies, then we're the baddies. And if they're not the baddies, then they're the goodies. Okay? I'm, 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 and therefore, what they do is what Rivka, in essence, Rivka and, Asa, uh, Rivka and, and Yaakov do, which is to dress us up in a certain way in order to ensure our survival. Okay? It's as simple as that. And it's amazing how they do it. The way in which they do it is brilliant. And then uh, just another example from Tanhumah. Okay, we find that all the transgressions that God hates were all to be found in Esav. Again, by the way, it's so obvious from the shot that Esav wasn't that person. Okay, um, someone, Shoshana, I think, said afterwards that the fact that 12 princes come from Esav, mm-hmm. right, and 12 tribes come from Yaakov, the fact that they were twins, not even half-brothers like Ishmael, they were twins, right? They, 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 there's an, and the fact, even that Yaakov, the whole, pat, the whole narrative of Yaakov dressing himself up in the clothes of Esau, and from then forth, elements of Esau are found in Yaakov the whole way along. Esau is, in many ways, part of our identity. There's an, and, and I would say even, I would go even one step further than that, Esau needs to be part of our identity. Okay, there was a need for Yaakov to go through this. There was a need for us to recognize that we need, as a nation, we need elements of Esau as well, right? And it's not all bad. And Esau, as it happens in the Peshat, is not a terrible person. Yes, he's very instinctual. He's very um, almost animalistic. He's a hunter, okay? He's into the hunt. He's there for the moment, okay? He, he doesn't necessarily have the ability, like a child, to reach out to the long-term consequences. He doesn't see his future self. He doesn't meet his future self. He doesn't recognize his future self. Okay, he, when, you know, if he was sitting in the marshmallow test, he would take the marshmallow straight away and wouldn't leave it for the child, you know, for, to get three marshmallows later. Okay, that's Aesop. But that's also an element of that is something that every human being needs. Okay, all of us need to be able to know how to survive in the moment. We all need survival instincts. There's part and parcel of being a nation that we need to live. If you look at us today, and this is always 
my father's Nikhwan al-Abracha, every time he came to Israel, he literally, at every single visit, he came very, very often, he would always say, he always says, every time I come and I drive around Israel, he says, I'm just in awe. I'm just amazed. He says, the way in which it's built, everywhere you see this building, this building, this building, you go and tell Aviv, the high tech comes He says, like, it's just a miracle. He said, but it's a human miracle as well. Because in many ways, Am Yisrael, are living, there's an element of living for the moment, right? Do it today because we don't know what's going to be tomorrow, right? Let's build today, build, 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 build. Don't think about the long term. Build, 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 because tomorrow we don't know what's going to happen. Part of that, part of that survival instinct, we have to take that from Asaph. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are today. We had to take that from Asaph. We needed it. Yaakov, ish, tam, yo, ish, tam, yo, shemo, alim, isn't enough. It's not enough. Right? We needed to have your day, your day, Asaph. We needed to know what it is to work with our hands, to go for the hunt, to go into the field, to get what we need in that moment, to kill if we need to kill, when we need to kill. But more than that, and this is the, this is the key here, and this is what the Midrash doesn't, because it works in binary methodology, it doesn't touch on the element the Pshat touches on. And that is, yes, we need an element of Asav, which the, obviously the Midrash doesn't do here because Asav's all bad, okay, and we're all good. Not only do we need an element of Asav, but we also need to know that when we act, act, so to speak, in the guise of Asav, there are consequences to be had. Because for every action that we do, there are consequences to be had. And I'll just give you the example of Israel today. Look at how many accidents there are in the building industry. Okay, how many people die for no reason, just because security, uh, just because security measures are not taken properly. How many buildings are built terribly because they want to get it done quick, quick, quick. Okay, that's just one example that I could think of as we were talking about building, but there are so many examples. What are the consequences of, of uh, and obviously the obvious consequences, dealing with our enemies, right? How do we deal with our enemies in a moral way? Are there, should we have moral guidelines? Should we restrain ourselves in certain situations in order to save lives of our enemies? Um, or should we not? These are, these are massive questions that can't, that the Midrash here can't solve for us. And by the way, the Midrash doesn't want to solve for us, okay? Because at that moment, when Chazal were writing, they were writing in the mode of survival. Let's remember that, okay? So what I'm saying here is it's, 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 it's multifaceted, but this, this one perspective that I want to bring to you is a very justified perspective for, certain, for a certain type of person in a certain historical situation. And I would say, even say, this is what we need to teach our children, okay? When, when, when they're in Gan, even in, in Kitot Alafekim or whatever it happens to be, that's what we teach them. Why? Because they're not old enough to cope with the with ambiguity. Uh, that's exactly. They're not old enough to cope with the ambiguity. That, by the way, maybe maybe we have problems coping with, right? Even we have problems coping with it. But but we're mature enough to understand that life is lived in that way. That that's part of living. But for them, they, they're far too young to be able. And the minute you tell them, well, you know, maybe Asa was actually a good guy. Well, then that makes us the bad guy. I don't want to be the bad guy. Right? Okay, so, okay. The second um, perspective that we're going to look at, um, which is also, we're looking at the two, remember, we're looking at the two extremes. Um, the second perspective. Sorry? 
That's unjustified, exactly. Okay, the second perspective is if one perspective is totally justified, the second perspective is totally unjustified. Okay, um, in that perspective, Yaakov and Rivka misjudge Yaakov, mis, mis, sorry, misjudge Asav. Okay, um, the um, the text itself doesn't explicitly. Um, critique their action. So I want, that, I want to be very clear. And this is why the ambiguity, this is why we're addressing it, because the text itself doesn't actually tell us what they, what they did was right or wrong. If it was that easy, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Okay? We don't know. And that's why it's, it's, but the text gives us a lot of different hints. And this is what I want to share with you now. The first idea I want to look at, okay, is that if you look carefully, there is a repeated mention of, of Asaph being the eldest son of Rivka. Look how many times it's repeated. It was when Yitzchak was old, his eyes had ceased to see that he called Asaph his eldest son. How many times? And Rivka took the clothes of her eldest son. Okay? And these words of Asaph, her eldest son, were told to Rivka. Okay? Why does the text have to repeat that he was the eldest son? Because it was exactly because it was due to him to get the pchora. Okay, he should have gotten the pchora. That's the way generally things are done. Okay, and what Rivka does here is to turn on its head the whole hierarchy of ancient times. Okay, which is that the firstborn gets the firstborn gets the birthright. Okay, and the text is emphasizing that in order for us to already being already entering into that gray zone okay it's not necessarily again i'm not saying that the text is necessarily critiquing Rifka, but it's certainly putting into our heads already the question okay and the question is was Rifka justified in taking away from a self that which was rightfully his okay is she justified? So that's the first thing I think the text already tells us. Um, the second is, yes. It could be, that's what I'm saying. I think it plants. She said, could it be that, the, that it's telling us that Rivka read the prophecy wrong? Um, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to give you a story, because I was thinking a lot about this after a few weeks ago when we were doing that class about the prophecy. I was thinking about it a lot afterwards. And I was thinking exactly about that question. Since you brought it up, I think it's important we address it. I was thinking exactly about that question that we, we asked which is essentially the prophecy was ambiguous, obviously ambiguous, right? And did Rivka read it right or did she read it wrong? Okay, did, did she interpret it? And I really, I really, really believe that the text doesn't come either way to tell us either. I'll give you an example. Uh, my daughter made a decision about something. She was on her way to doing what she'd made the decision about. And um, she said to me, and we've been debating about it for, for a long time. It was a very big decision about something. And, and, she, and, and she made the decision, and we were driving to, to where she was going, which was the first day of this decision. And um, she said to me, I don't know if I've made the right decision. 
right? Um, and I said to her, you've made the decision, now you're going to make it the right decision. Okay? Now, again, and, and I said to her, obviously, if you ever want to change in the future after trying out whatever you're doing, that option's always open, but you've got to now make it the right decision. You've got to go into it in the mindset that this is the right decision, right? Because otherwise, you're always going to be in that nuanced gray area. You're not ever going to commit yourself to anything. Now, I was thinking about that a lot when I was thinking about this graph because I think, and I think it's important you brought this up because it is a really important topic here. It's the same, by the way, with the arcade <laughs> The whole of the arcade the way that we read it, remember? I mean, we looked at many, many, many interpretations, but in the end, the one interpretation that I brought for you, which which I haven't seen in other places, but I, I, I pray that it's an, a justified interpretation, is that the idea of Yirat Elohim, remember we spoke about this idea of what Yirat Elohim is, and that at the end, God comes and says, Yirat Elohim, and what does Yirat Elohim mean? And we spoke about the idea of Yirat Elohim being inner conscience, and that in essence, what Abraham achieves after the Akedah, which is his final test, and why is that his final test? Because what he achieves is the, is the integration of the external voice with the internal conscience, okay? And there, he, by the way, from then on, he never hears God anymore. God never comes in external voice anymore because he's managed to integrate the external and the internal, and maybe in many ways that's what the development of humanity is. Why we don't have prophecy as the external voice anymore is because we are meant to be on the level whereby our conscience and our moral intuition have internalized both the external and the internal. It's very complicated. I can't do it standing on one foot, right? However, I have written something on it for those interested. However, okay, um, one of the things there is, one of the key messages there is that the original prophecy he gets from Hashem with the Akedah is ambiguous, exactly the same ambiguity as Rivka's prophecy. Okay, it's not a very clear prophecy at the beginning. Um, and what I suggested there is that at, he, Abraham understands the prophecy at the beginning as sacrificing his son for many, many reasons, which I don't want to get into now. Okay, but essentially for, for, for very... Um, for very righteous reasons, okay? He believes that he's meant to sacrifice his son because it basically shows God that he's giving up. Till now, God always says, I'm going to reward you, I'm going to reward you, I'm going to... and he gets rewarded, and he gets rewarded. And now God is basically saying, give, give up everything I promised you. And Abraham believes that that's what he's meant to do. He's meant to show God that he's willing to give up everything. Only at the very last minute when the malach comes down, and I've read the malach as the idea of being this inner voice, does he suddenly realize, hold on a minute, I've read the prophecy wrong. Hey, God does not want me to sacrifice my child. Okay? That's what I'm talking about here. And I think that with Rifka, we don't need, as the reader of the text, we, it's not our job, okay, to read it one way or the other. It's her job to interpret it one way or the other. The autonomy belongs to Rifka, it doesn't belong to us. Okay, we're the passive reader. We're not really passive because we also interpret, but we're the passive reader in this particular instance. Okay? The person who's the autonomous agent in this instance is Rifka. She is the one that receives the prophecy. She needs to act upon it, therefore she needs to interpret it. And what we read is the acting on her interpretation of the prophecy. Now we can judge it as Shoshana has. Maybe she got it wrong. No, 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 I'm not saying you judged it. I'm saying you correctly, no, I'm not saying you did. But I'm saying you correctly brought up the question of maybe she got it wrong, which I think is a very justified question, very justified. Okay? Um, 
But I really, really believe, as I said to my daughter, I really believe you've made the decision, now make it the right decision. And that is what we're reading here. We are reading a decision that Rivka made and made into what became the right decision because from that we became Am Yisrael. Okay? And therefore, on, uh, it's, it's very nuanced here. I'm really hoping you're getting where I'm coming from. Okay? I, to read it in the black and white form in which we've spoken about, in the binary form of good or bad, black or white, we could read it and say, she got the prophecy wrong. And therefore, our entire nationhood is based on falsity. But I don't believe that's how the Torah is meant to be read. Okay? I believe it's meant to be read in a multifaceted, complex, complex, inter dynamic way, okay, if that word even exists, and there, in that, reading it that way, what happens is that Rivka comes along and she says, I have a prophecy that I have interpreted in this way, and I am now going to do what I believe is the correct act in order to fulfill the prophecy. What we, the reader, are left with is not the question of whether what she did is right or wrong, because it's done, right? What we, the re- I mean, we can, we can ask it, but that's her agency. Her agency is to read the prophecy, that's not ours. Our agency is to question what are the consequences. Whenever we do an act, what are the consequences of that action? And by the way, also to perhaps place ourselves maybe in the shoes of Rivka, not in that exact situation, but in similar situations where we don't have vision of clarity. Today, our generation more than ever is a generation of Rivka in the sense that we, we don't have an absolute clarity as to what God wants us to do and not do. It's not clear. And by the way, anyone who comes and says it's absolutely clear, Halakha tells us X, Y, Z, doesn't understand how Halakha works in my mind, okay? And doesn't understand the basis on which Judaism is, is, is founded, right? Because because even halakha, fine, you have to come down with a final, at the end of the day, you have to have a psak halakha. Okay? But the, the, the way in which one gets that psak halakha is so complicated, so complex, I mean, far, far, far beyond the scope of certainly my ability, right? And, and, and therefore, really what we're saying here is our generation where we don't have prophets, where we don't have God coming speaking directly to us, we are constantly being faced with that dilemma of, of Rivka, how to interpret a situation, and then trying very, very, very carefully, trying to think, and by the way, you're never going to be able to know the consequences of every action, but trying to think which action I take will have the least negative consequences, because every action, if it's, if it's a question, it's going, to have, it's, going to have, it's going to be morally ambiguous. If it's not a question, it's not morally ambiguous. It's either yes or no, black or white. But if it's a question, it's going to have different um, consequences. And each part is going to have a different... And part of weighing up which action I'm going to take is to weigh up. Uh, my husband, as you all know, is a surgeon, and he gave us... Uh, he every, every few months in B'nai Akiva on Friday night, they have different people from Moshav, different parents coming and speaking about different various topics. He, they always ask him to come and talk about the ethical dilemmas of, of medicine, right? And he always has these sheets with all these various ethical dilemmas. And obviously the classic dilemma is, you know, you're, you're, you're a doctor and, and walks through the Miyun, two people, both bleeding, both equally thingy. One is, a, one, is the, uh, the, one is the person who's been shot and one is the person who has shot. Okay, which one do you treat first? I mean, that's 
classic, okay? Um, what, what, where, at that moment, what do you, how do you decide who to treat? Okay, that's exactly the thing. You need to think about the consequences. What's going to happen? Is it, or do you, whatever. Or is there a certain way to it? That's exactly what I'm saying here. Every action has different consequences. And therefore, I think here, and, and this is really the key with Rivka, is the Torah, and this is the, I mean, clearly a divinely given book, because I don't even think a human could, like, open us up to the, the multifarious consequences that come many, many prakim later, okay, to what Yaakov does. It's not even then and there. Then and there, we, for sure, we have Yaakov, Yitzchak, Yaakov um, saying, your brother came and he deceived you, and we have all the immediate consequences. Yaakov being exiled, Yaakov not really understanding what he's done, not knowing himself, Rivka going out of the text completely. These are all the immediate consequences, but many, 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 many chapters later, all the way to the end of Sefer Boshe, and further, which we're going to see in a minute, okay, are the consequences of this action. Why? Because there is a lack of clarity. But one thing I will say is that when Rivka receives the prophecy and interprets the prophecy, it then becomes a prophecy. Okay, that's it. It then becomes a prophecy. A hundred percent. For sure. So again, I think that really is, you know, you try to teach your kids what intuition is, right? And to trust your intuition. And that's why I believe Rivka did what she did was right, because she trusted her intuition. And therefore she did what she did was right, but not what she did was, I'm going to say again, what she did was true, not necessarily right. Mm. And therefore, we're going to look at what does that mean not to be right. The other example, by the way, of someone who also hears something, keeps it in his mind till later, is who? Yaakov and Yosef's dreams. Remember, Yosef's dreams, and it says Yaakov, um, what's the exact word? Yaakov kept to mind the dreams of Yosef. Okay, meaning again, thinking about what, again, Yaakov, does Yaakov know that all 12 of his sons are going to be chosen? No, he probably thinks what? Like Abraham had to choose between sons, two sons, and Yitzhak had to choose between sons. Yaakov also has to choose between his 12 sons. Therefore, he hears the thing of Yosef, and like Rivka, his mother, he thinks, I'm going to hold that in my head. I'm going to see what develops out after that and who's going to be the most fitting to be the one chosen or not chosen. Clearly, Yosef thinks he's going to be chosen. And by the way, Yaakov has an affinity with Yosef precisely because he's a dreamer, as is Yaakov. Okay? And all of these things. So the second, um, the second perspective really sits here. What's the time? Oh, okay. One more minute. The second perspective really sits here in, 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 this, um, in these two binary ways of looking at it. One saying that they're totally justified, Rivka and Yaakov's actions are totally justified, and this perspective is saying, no, they're not justified. And where do we see that? So the first place that we see it is this idea of the elder son being hinted to the text. The second place we see it um, is, ve- is, very, is very much the text itself. Where? And this is really, really, really important. Okay? The, the, um, there is the, the text uses some kind of rhetoric device 
to arouse in us absolute sympathy with a sub. Okay? And when we read it, and we read it together, and I said mm-hmm. to you, it's difficult not to be affected by what happens, right? Yitzchak, firstly, Yitzchak sees, sees by great trembling. Okay? What does that tell us? Yitzchak's been duped. Okay? He has been deceived. Okay? And then Esau hears his father's words, and he cries a great and exceedingly bitter cry. Okay? Where else do we see that phraseology, by the way? In a few different places, and we're going to look at where we see it. Okay? And he says to his father, bless me to my father, like this, you know, you can't help but feel for him, right? And Aesop says to his father, have you anyone blessing for you, my father? Bless me to my father. And Aesop raises his voice and weeps. Okay? So again, it's clear that the text, if the text did not want us to feel an affinity with Aesop, if the text wanted us to read it only in the way that the Midrash tries to set it out, that Aesop is what? The evil one, the baddie, the one who, who doesn't have any feelings, the animalistic, the hunter, the living for the moment, the hedonist, okay? Then what would the text want, what would the text clearly do? It would alienate him from his sentiments, right? From his feelings, right? And on the contrary, what the text does for us is, and here's the key, the text humanizes a sub. Okay? Now again, remember we know this. When you want to kill somebody, when when what you have to do, you demonize the person. Okay, look at the Holocaust. We don't need to look far. Okay, look at the suicide bombers. They demonize and dehumanize, right? The person they're going to kill. Okay, I'll never forget, I'm sure I've told you this, but I was listening to a radio station of someone who had gone out to be a suicide bomber, and I'll finish with this, and he, um, he, um, he was interviewed afterwards because he didn't go through with it, and then he became an activist for, um, for peace between Palestinians and, and the Israelis, whatever. And he, anyway, he goes out, and he, um, he says that he, what, what stops him? They ask him, why did you not blow the bus up? And he says, I got onto the bus, and there was an orange-haired woman standing on the bus. And she said there was something about her red hair and I kept looking at her and I kept looking at her and then she was talking and she was smiling and she was with her friends and she was and she said that and then I saw my mother and I saw my sister and I saw my cousin and I and she said I just couldn't go ahead with it. Right? And that is the moment whereby the human when you humanize somebody, exactly what Levinas talks about, Emmanuel Levinas, okay, very famous twentieth century philosopher. He says, Where is the root? of morality in the face-to-face encounter because when I really see the face of the other there is no way that I could ever kill the other and that is what the text is doing here with Aesop. The text wants us to hear Aesop's cry, wants us to listen and to be totally in tune to his scream, to his begging his father for a bracha, otherwise it wouldn't be there in the text and by doing that what does it do? I'm going to go back to what the original thing I did at the beginning of the class. It creates in us a really uncomfortable feeling, a feeling of, are we really right in what we did? Okay, doubting ourselves. And I take it even really, and this is really, it humbles us. It humbles us. Because when we believe that we possess the truth with a capital T, when we believe that we are right with a capital R, and we are absolute in our vision, okay? we become arrogant, egotistical, and what happens is we become extreme. And that's exactly what the text doesn't want us to do. Yes. Yeah.